All right, welcome to Look at My Records. Very happy to have Otis Ball here with me today. Hi, How Tom. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Great to connect with you. I'm a big fan. I believe I discovered your music first through a Bar None Records Spotify playlist, and I heard Slow Boat to Hoboken. I really love that song, so ah. it's really great to meet you. Ah, well, likewise. Thank you very much. And so... Tell me a little bit about your background. You've been involved in the music industry around here for a long time, Hoboken scene. You originally started out in Illinois, though, where you're from, right? Yeah. Uh, um, grew up in the suburbs. Music career started in DeKalb. Like, I was there 85 to 88, college town, Northern Illinois University. How'd you wind up here? I know you kind of had a connection with They Might Be Giants, right? Which brought you to New York? Basically, They Might Be Giants started popping up on MTV 120 Minutes. I guess it would have been 87, maybe late 86, probably 87. I just really liked them and sent them a fan letter and a cassette tape of a bunch of my recordings. And next thing I know, I got a postcard from them from the road. Hey, we really like your stuff and keep <laughs> doing it. And I was like, whoa. Oh, this is great and they said come see us when uh, when we're in town signed john and john oh yeah and so then they came to illinois and you saw them and you yeah uh, they played in, with them they played in chicago and i showed up we got there early went up to the guy wearing the fez at the t-shirt stand and said hey i'm otis ball he's like whoa <laughs> that's so cool said, come with me <laughs> he abandoned the t-shirt uh area and uh, took me up to the dressing room where they were hanging out and do you remember that first meeting like what did you guys of course talk I do. about oh i don't remember what we talked about my uh, my bass player at the time killer came with like we were we were both just this is this was not the reception we expected i mean you know you send a tape they're like hey come see us live and yeah yeah you, you figure it's just like basically thank you for the tape uh, we put it in a pile we'll get to it later but no, they, they knew exactly who, who I was. That's cool. That's really exciting. Did they get to see you live at all after that? Not when I was in Illinois. But they said, look, you should send a tape to our record label. And, you know, we'll let them know to keep an eye out for it, that it's not just some tape being sent. And sure enough, I mean, they followed through on everything. And uh, eventually I got a call from... Uh, Glenn at Barn One saying, uh, you know, hey, you know, we like your tape. <laughs> and so the calls and letters and more tapes went back and forth. Glenn and uh, Tom, the other owner at the time, flew out and saw me once, maybe twice in DeKalb. Oh, cool. At that time. And then when did you move to New York? Right after that? Shortly after? Mm, oh, no. It, it, it took... It took about a year. I mean, it wasn't like I got a call saying, we want to sign you. Come out now. Mo well, I came out for a couple weeks right around the 4th of July of 88. At this point, it was pretty clear I was going to be moving out there and doing an album. Uh, my brother lived in Greenpoint at the time, so stayed there and... For the two weeks, started nosing around to try and find a place to live, try to find a job, and recorded, I think, four demos at Dubway, 
I think we recorded four songs. Also, that trip, I wrote Slow Boat to Hoboken. <laughs> like, yeah. I, th- I think it was the 4th of July, but it was definitely that two weeks I was out here. And also, they introduced me to some mu- musicians that ended up being uh, my first band that, uh, for the most part, play on the album, the first album. You know, we uh, we went to uh, rehearsal space a few times and just got to know each other and play. So got a lot done in the two weeks. Cool. It was brutally hot. <laughs> and I got, I don't know if it was a, a pollen or something, my throat was on fire for almost the entire time. Oh, my goodness. Good memories, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> not that sore throat. And so tell me about New York, specifically Hoboken, you guess had a lot of experiences here. What was it like in Hoboken music scene wise when you first arrived? Because it was kind of after the original right. freewheeling Steve Fallon days. It's a little different. I, I came in like right, right at the tail end or just after it really was turning into my impression because i wasn't there my impression it was more focused on a lot of the local stuff i mean not that they didn't bring in the the national acts but at that time they were only national acts in the sense that they came from different places from the united states you know maxwell's broke a ton of these bands or certainly had a huge hand in uh, you know like the rems the replacements on and on and on. For me, it was like th- that uh, guitar pop was really, that's what I love. Yeah. Like me those too. pop songs, like the, the DBs. I remember one day I started working at Pier, must have been spring of 89. The same time I'm, well, well, this must have been, I guess I was probably just finishing up my album or at least recording the main tracks. And working at Pier, Chris Stamey walked in one day. <laughs> I had, this This tells you how long ago this was, I had a Walkman in my pocket with one of my songs. And I said, oh, Chris, such a huge fan. You know, told him my quick story. And, uh, you know, he knew all the uh, Barn One people. I said, hey, can I play you a song? And he said, sure. And he sat there in Pier, listened to the three and a half minute song. I'm Almost positive it was Love You Till I Don't. And he said, well, you know, if it was me, I'd do this, this, and this. It was already recorded. I couldn't change anything. <laughs> I was probably half knees wobbly. Wow. <laughs> so tell me, how'd you start working at Pier Platters? And such a legendary record store to this day. It still is held in high regard. And it's probably been closed for over 20 years at this point, I think. Almost 25, yeah. September of 95. So to this day, people still talk about it. I never went there. I was too young, and I know about it. I know it's famous for its uh, New Zealand and Australia import section and stuff like that. But did you know about the record store before you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. worked there? Absolutely. Uh, I was getting all the zines, and there was always a Pier Platters ad in Trouser Press. Wow. Always. So you knew about it even oh. in the Midwest. Oh, absolutely. That uh, summer of 80, 88 when I came out, Glenn took me to eat at Leo's Grandevue. I went over to Pier Platters for the first time. And 
there were no bands playing that night, but one of the nights I was out there, we went up to Maxwell's for dinner, and I got to see the back room for the first time. And, you know, it's just all these bootleg tapes I had for, at that point, almost a decade. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is the place. When those doors opened, it was walking into, same way I felt when I walked into Sun Studios in Memphis. Wow. Like, you know, this is, shit happened here. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it. I remember the first time I went to Maxwell's too, and you just feel the history just walking in there. Absolutely, and it's, a, it's a great place that we all really miss a lot. What are some of your favorite memories working at Pure Platters? Maybe aside from uh, approaching Chris Stamey. Favorite memories? Oh, it's so difficult to. Everyone was in and out. Everybody, because most of the bands would stop at pier during the day. They had time to kill. I mean, when they were playing at Maxwell's. Um, Sonic Youth rehearsed in uh, Hoboken, and we were on the way to their uh, their rehearsal space, not to mention Suzanne Sasek, one of the giants of rock lighting, to this day, is still out there. Like, she worked there, too, and she was doing Sonic Youth lights in... Early as maybe 85 or 86? Something like that. Got to meet all kinds of people. And after the first, oh, year and a half or so I was there, you know, after I made my bones, and Suzanne, who basically at that time, it was basically Bill and Suzanne running the place. Suzanne just started getting all these lighting gigs, and she was on the road all the time. And I was more than happy to step up. So then I'm doing ordering and on the phone with, you know, Sub Pop, K Records, Simple Machines, Teen Beat, as well as all the distribution companies. And the major labels would call us a lot of the time, like for the stuff we specialized in, like, you know, how's this record doing? How's that? Can you push this? Can you push that? So just getting to know people at Maxwell's at that time probably safe to say three or four nights a week there was usually at least one band i wanted to see sometimes i mean they were usually three band bills sometimes just went up because that's where everyone was yeah all your friends you know you peeking like i heard about this band and you go in see a few songs go out chat some more maybe have dinner go back in see what this other band's all about and what do you think made Pier Platters so special that it still has this lasting legacy? It's, I think it's a combination of two things. Well, really, it's one giant thing. It was that Maxwell's was booking all these new, exciting bands. Pier was selling the records. So the people getting into like the really early... Call it what you want. Indie, alternative, DIY. If you lived in this area, you know, it was probably Maxwell's or Seabees for the most part back then. So you get out of the path. Piers right there. You do your shopping for records. You go up, have dinner at Maxwell's. And then the first band starts. It was, it was kind of as simple as that. It was a combination of Steve Fallon and Todd Abramson at Maxwell's just being right on top of everything. Bill Ryan, when I was there, Tom was doing uh, Barn One at that point. Tom Bejure, right? No, 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 no. Uh, uh, Prendergast. Prendergast, the Irish guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and uh, there was total communication. We sold the Maxwell's. Well, we were one of the places that sold tickets for Maxwell's. Yeah. If you wanted to buy advanced tickets, you went uh, to Pier. Over the years, I know other music was a place in the city where you could buy them. I have a vague memory that before other music, there was a second place that sold tickets, probably in the city. Oh, maybe it was... Uh, um, oh, I know what it was. Uh, what was that uh, zine shop on St. Mark's? Oh, what were they called? Yeah. Oh, this is embarrassing. I'm positive that was the other spot. But yeah, you know, some people would go see the bands at CB's. A lot of people knew, well, you can go to CB's and it's crowded and yeah. it's there's... And you can't go to the... Well, you can go to the bathroom. You just don't want to go to the bathroom. Some people chose to make the hike, take the path train, and head into Hoboken. And hey, on the way, they could stop at Pierre and buy some of the singles that they had a hard time finding somewhere else. Yeah. Or the albums. We had a lot of stuff that were hard, if not impossible, to find sometimes almost anywhere else. It's really amazing when I hear that. It's a, it's it's great, and it's a testament to how the Hoboken scene at that time. Bill Ryan was such a mentor to me, like in so many ways. When I got here's here's a story. <laughs> you wanted some favorite stories from here. Here you go. Here's a story. When I first started working there, they would usually dress up. There, there was. There, there used to be, well, it's still there, and it's just a cookie shop now, but a, a, a really large plate glass picture window, the storefront up here. They would put posters or, you know, what, whatever. Every once in a while, they went out of their way to hype something. When I first started working there, the entire uh, border, like all sides, all four sides, were taped with a seven-inch single. Like, all the way around. Yeah. Like, it must have been, I don't know, 37 inches. I th they they took the actual 7-inch singles out, but it was the the sleeve. I'd never heard of this band before. I'm like, all right. It's like, it's this new account that we're dealing direct with. I'm like, okay, great. And uh, they played the single, and I thought, eh, it's kind of fun, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a little too noisy for me. <laughs> Couldn't have been much longer after that. Working there one day, must have been a Tuesday. Shipment of six boxes comes in from UPS. Like, geez, what's in here? Must be a ton of stuff. No, two titles. <laughs> Three boxes of each. I open these boxes. I've never heard of these bands. We're never gonna sell these. Well... That single was by a band called Mud Honey, <laughs> titled "Touch Me, me I'm, I'm Sick." Sick. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the two albums that should actually one was an EP, one was the first Fluid 12 inch, yeah, and the other one was Nirvana's first album. Oh. And within three days, both boxes were gone. Wow! And we had to order more immediately. Wow. Was that the same year that Nirvana played Maxwell for with the Tad. first time with yeah. Tad? Yeah. You can find that on the McKenzie tapes. Uh, not the Tad set, but the Nirvana set <laughs> on the Bleach tour. They, they were opening for Tad. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Any bands you remember seeing at Maxwell's during that period that are just really memorable and it's like, whoa, 
that band really took off after that. Oh, you know, I gotta really say when when you really look back, even in the late '90s and early 2000s, Todd was really getting bands to come in like right before they like took off. You know, you, you look, you see yeah, early 2000s, The Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and the '90s, uh, Nirvana, OA, like even Oasis and stuff it, it, like that. It wasn't an accident or coincidence. Yeah. Um, Todd knew what he was doing. I mean, he's he doesn't book nearly as often as he used to, to the best of my knowledge. Maybe he does. You do any job as long as someone like Todd has. It's not an accident. You yeah. learn how to do it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but oh, some of the memorable shows. A number of the New Year's Eve shows. I saw Soul Asylum. Uh, it was at 90, right? I think we the Mackenzie Tapes has that. They, the Mackenzie Tapes has a Soul Asylum New Year's Eve show. Okay. I can't remember I, if, what year it is. Well, but. whatever it is, I'm sure that I don't remember them playing twice. Yeah. The, the Mummies played one. Mud Honey played one. Maybe the Muffs? I mean, I know I saw them there a bunch. I yeah, kind the Muffs think, played there a lot. I think, yeah. they were on, I think they were on one of the New Year's Eve shows. Ton, just so many shows I saw. The Grifters, Archers of Loaf, oh, wow. um, Afghan Wigs, uh, saw the replacements play there. Like they they did a special secret afternoon show. Saw the original Buzzcocks play there. Wow. Wow. Very cool, Otis. Op- open for Bob Mould solo there. You Otis Ball did. Yeah, Otis he, Ball band. No, no. Oh, he was playing a solo acoustic show. And he asked if I opened one of them. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> that's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, uh, oh, what was... Oh, oh, I saw Bob Mould's very first solo show there with Chris Stamey on guitar and um, uh, um, Perubu, uh, 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 Tony Momoni yeah. on bass. And, and I think Anton Fear on drums. Yes, yes, I do. I, I, I think do I even know that. who the other guy is, but it, I'm blanking right now. <laughs> the, Dave Dave Schramm, maybe? Yes, I think so, because i pretty sure I read about this show. What was 87, 88? No, Bubbles? no, it would have no, been no, 89. 89, 90? But yeah, probably 89. So I looked it up, this show, in the Husker Du archive, because it also lists Grant Hart's when he started playing solo shows and Bob Mould. This was literally one of his first, if not his first ever solo show. My memory is it was his first. Yeah. If it wasn't, it was his second, but yeah. I'm I'm almost positive it was his first ever. Like, like, I think he did some solo acoustic shows in Minneapolis early yeah. on, or, or maybe during the Husker Du years. But like, as far as the Bob Mould band that went on to record those uh, early Virgin albums. Yeah. Yeah, this was... First, if not second. Amazing. Very cool. So, kind of transitioning into the mid-90s, you were working with They Might Be Giants a lot, right? Going on tour with them. Uh, 92, 93-ish? Yeah, on and off 92, 93. Just uh, the U.S. dates. And so, throughout this time, you keep in touch with them uh, regularly before you kind of went on tour with them as a merch guy or... Here and there, um, I mean, they were they were busy blowing up yeah but uh they came, they did uh background vocals on one of the songs on my first album their manager uh was working real closely with uh barn one at that point 
and uh, I'd run into him. They asked Freddie Johnston to do like five or six opening dates acoustically with them. Uh, probably summer or fall of 92, maybe spring. Freddie wanted to bring a second guitarist around. And for, for periods slightly before this and for a little while after, I was like, I was Freddie's third choice guitarist, I think, maybe fourth. <laughs> he had regular lead guitarists. But a lot of it was just doing clubs around town or a short uh, haul here or there. And th these were all working musicians. So he couldn't always get his first or second choice. And when that came up, or third choice, <laughs> he would call me. And I, I knew enough of his stuff that I could jump in. And so he asked if I'd do it for this tour. And I said, great. And that's how I got to know, like, even more of the They Might Be Giants infrastructure. Their sound guy ended up co-producing my second album. After that five, six date stretch, at some point after that, probably within a few months, I got a call asking if I'd be interested in being their driver, personal handler, and doing the merch. For a leg and I said well I've never really done anything like that but yeah I'm interested so talked with uh, their management and it's like they explained to me exactly what it would entail and talked to Bill and said hey can I get off and one of the amazing things about Pier is so many of the people there were musicians so if someone had to go off on tour there was someone else coming back from tour, they could take over. Like uh, uh, Donna from Tiny Lights worked there for a while. Um, Bob Burt from Pussy Galore, Sonic Youth. Artie from Earth Pig. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lyle from Das Damen. Uh, uh, Bettina, who I believe this day still does Thrill Jockey Records. She worked there. All kinds of people. Cool. And what were the experiences that you had touring with They Might Be Giants? What was it like? I had a great time. More than anything, to get the opportunity to really see all of America and uh, a number of places in Canada as well. Just, it was the perfect time, like, at least as far as my, my age at that time. Must, let's see, when would it have been? It was like 29, 30, 31, some, somewhere in there, to go on the road, being paid well to do it, getting to hang with a couple guys that I really liked, and get to know them personally after just kind of knowing them through this whole getting signed thing. Seeing all these venues, most of them I'd never have seen. You know, Los Angeles, First Staff, Minneapolis, played there. 40 Watt Club, Athens, played there. Like the, at that time, all the ones that were still around, yeah. like, must have seen most of them, at least as far as the uh, 1,200 to, if we're in L.A. or something, 10, 12,000, maybe? Wow, wow. 8,000, 10,000? Did the Central Park Summer Stage. It, it, it was amazing. It was an adventure. It sounds like an adventure, for yeah. sure. On one of the legs, um, Charles Thompson, Frank Black, 
he had nothing to do. He was he was wasn't recording, wasn't touring, and he and Flansburg were were really good friends. So Frank Black was just, hey, I'm going to come on this Texas leg of the tour. And he showed, he flew in, rented a Lincoln Town car, and just followed us around for four or five days and hung out. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. Did, he didn't play at all? Or no. Play any games? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I'm one leg, maybe two legs. Pair Ubu opened. Oh, wow. So I got to hang out with David Tom. Oh, 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 oh. David Thomas had something on the Ubu Rider that he had to be provided a bottle of Johnny Walker Black every night. Well, after he'd finished the set, he'd come out to wherever I was at the uh, merchandise booth. And he'd bring the bottle of Johnny Walker Black, and we'd trade shots, and I would just ask him questions about mid-70s Cleveland, which is one of like my favorite time and place for music. Yeah. All that old stuff. And and they were playing, you know, I mean, they were going up to New York to play with television, and I mean, you may not even know who Peter Loeffner is. I do not. Tell oh, me about him. Oh. <laughs> he was in Rocket from the Tombs, I'm familiar the pre-Ubu yeah. band. I I think he was in a very early version of Perubu. Like I think he's on some of the singles, but not even on the album. Just one of these crazy rock characters. Like a Lou Reed, but more Cleveland. Yeah. Like very literary, very guitar. Rocket from the Timbs. Peter Loeffner. Peter Loeffner. Oh, we could we could put a song in here. Let's play. Let's play some Peter Loeffner. Thank you. 
Peter Lofner. Late 70s. Oh, damn. David Thomas, the lead singer. Singer of Pierre Uber. Yes. And, and also Tony Mamoni, who was in the original version of Ubu, he was in They Might Be Giants band. The last leg when they, when they Might Be Giants were working from pre-recorded tracks. The bulk of when I was with them were the first year and a half when they were bringing a full live band, wow. full band on the road, and also after that is I I can't remember if they used full band on Apollo thirteen. I think they did. So you were you were touring with them around that time, Apollo thirteen. Yes, John Henry or oh, no, John I, Henry I, was after you. Yeah, yeah, I was gone yeah, by then. So yeah, I, basically the north, most of the North American uh, Apollo thirteen shows. Yeah, and that's such an interesting time in They Might Be Giants history, I'd say. They're kind of like really hitting their stride with major label. I heard it almost every night. <laughs> Statue got me high, right? Good yep. song. I like that song. But um, so after that, you did this uh, Lollapalooza. That was actually... Before that? Or? No, I think it was in the middle. In the middle? I think it was in one of the breaks, because I actually ended up turning down a They Might Be Giants tour leg to do this. What happened was, this was the 93 Lollapalooza tour. This is right when, oh, the major labels are signing all the indie bands. It's, it's sign everybody throw everything against the wall, see what sticks. Everyone's just trying to sign anybody that might be anything. Yeah. And a lot of bands, particularly the DC-ish area, but hardly just them, were given some pushback. And rightfully so. Yeah. A lot of those bands that got signed, that was it. Record comes out, does nothing, major labels are on to the next one. And then you're back where you started. So I got a call from Jenny Toomey at Simple Machines Records, also the band Tsunami at the time. Yeah. 
and they were asked to play the side stage that year. And they said, well, we don't want to do it. And they said, well, what can we do to get you to do it? <laughs> and at that point, I'm sure they sat around one night like, what can we ask for? <laughs> Among the things they asked for was, we want there to be a traveling record store that will be on the Lollapalooza tour when we're in these places where kids can't have a hard time finding these records, they'll be able to buy these records at Lollapalooza. I guess next they called me and said, hey, do you want to run this? And I said, ooh, I don't know. Let me think about it. The tour started in the Pacific Northwest and I had a very good friend living up there. So I called him and I said, look, got this offer, I'm gonna need someone to help. Do you wanna do Lollapalooza for the summer? He's like, ooh, yeah, ooh. <laughs> I said, all right, well, it starts up there, so made tentative plans, well, actually made real plans eventually, that uh, I would start contacting the indie record labels. We would start looking into, you know, rental van, buying a tent, like all just the stupid stuff you got to do for basically running an outdoor show for a summer. Uh, must have been a week and a half, two weeks before the tour started just to get everything in line. We could build like, uh, you know, one of those wooden uh, benches for the back that we could sleep on if we had to and put the records underneath. And then came the day it started. It was, I believe it was the Gorge at George Washington. The night before, we drove out to the cheapest motel we could find near there and went out to a nice steak dinner to celebrate <laughs> so we could get a good night's sleep and get out there the next morning. And we had to be there probably at least two hours before doors opened, which is probably noon for, what, a show that's not ending until 11.30, yeah. like long day. So we were set up fairly quickly. I think we had to wait maybe 45 minutes till the doors open. Finally, they, they we're just twiddling our thumbs. Doors open. We're like, here we go. People start piling in. A lot of things to see, a lot of things to do. Most people that are there first in line, they're there early so they can get right up to the front. Yeah. They keep going by. It's like, all right, nothing to worry about. A couple people sort of would walk by and look and nod and keep going all right fair enough hour later maybe first band starts we're still twiddling our thumbs <laughs> yeah few bands in now people are starting to wander around and see what else is going on a lot of people are we'll get them on the way out and that's what i'm thinking oh well that makes sense who wants to carry records around all at an all day outdoor music festival answer nobody yeah. so at that point we figure all right well we're just going to have to realize we're just going to get a massive pile at the end of the night. So be prepared. I'm like, okay. End of the night comes. People are exhausted, want to get to their cars, spent most of their money on food, water, and beverages all day. I think maybe we did 250 Maybe. Maybe. All right. Well, it's the first night. Second show. Same thing. Third show, same thing. 
The next two shows are a two-night stand in San Francisco. Me and my buddy, that's it, we're quitting. Talk to our contact guy at Lollapalooza who's like, oh, no, we really want you to stay. We're not coming close to making our nut. Like, to keep going, take more of an investment that I have to cover if this keeps going bad. So we had to bail. So we did three shows. The addendum to this story is the next year, 1994 Lollapalooza. Can't remember. I think it was Sam Goody. I think it was Sam Goody. I can't remember 100% for sure. One of the chains bought the license to be the record store at Lollapalooza. That entire year in between the two, I got one call from some guy's fanzine I hope it's not one of my friends. I can't remember which one it is. <laughs> top of my head. If it was one of my friends, it wasn't just some guy's fancy. I think that I think it might just be the two. There might have been one other fancy call. No one from Sam Goody, no one from anyone bidding on this contract, managed or bothered to give me a call and say, "Hey, why did you guys bail on this?" <laughs> just curious, because if they had. I would have told him exactly why. What happened? Needless to say, Sam Goody did not do it the next year. (laughs) So that's the experiment of a record store traveling with the Lollapalooza (laughs) festival. Honestly, any outdoor festival of that length. It's tough. Sounds tough. Well, well, again, uh, uh, people are just spending their money on essentials all day. And then they just want to go home, if they even have money left for records. Yeah. So they, they wanted, Jenny wanted it mostly to be vinyl and also did not want any major light label stuff. It had to be all indie. Who's going to carry vinyl around all day yeah. on, on a summer day for... It's hard. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So let's play some of your songs. How's that sound? <laughs> sure. So what would you like to play? Let's play something from the unreleased record. I'd love to do that. All right.
Hoboken. We did touch on it a little bit. Yeah. But, um... Don't go there anymore. Yeah, don't go there anymore. <laughs> I agree. But what do you think led to the change in your stuff you've sent me? You kind of feel, you kind of touch on, obviously, this huge change in the music industry and the decline mm-hmm. of... Uh, you know, independently run venues like Maxwell's and stuff like that. What do you think was really the the focal point? I mean, probably the decline of physical sales of music and stuff like that. I think the 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 independent clubs still seem to be holding their own. I mean, they, they always come and go, but you can't go to a live show on the internet. You yeah. can see one, you can hear one, but you can't go. As far as what happened to the music industry, in my opinion, it was a lot of bad decisions that started when they were making money hand over fist yeah. and thought it would never end. The money thrown out the window during the big heyday. The money thrown out the window during the heyday was a huge part of it. And when would you say Hoboken really changed? Was it when Pure Platters closed? You know, Maxwell's did stay open for another 20 years-ish, but it's definitely a lot different. I guess that depends on what you mean by Hoboken changing. Music scene wise, like when did you feel like? Oh, oh, music scene wise, well, like I, I, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I think I came at the very tail end of the real Hoboken music scene. Yeah. Um, I mean, by that time, uh, uh, Glenn had had Barn One. Like Rage to Live was just sort of a one off. Like he, they didn't tour it or anything. Um, DBs long gone. Yeah. Uh, Yola were really starting to crack and probably at that point considered more of a New York band than Hoboken band, or certainly well on their way, at least in the big picture. Uh, although they, they did, and I believe still do, live in Hoboken. Uh, but, you know, it, it, that whole scene had either moved up or moved on by that point, for the most part. Yeah. There, there was still plenty of fun to be had, and, and some people still live there. Bob Bird still lives there. Yeah. Bob Mould was living there for a while. Yeah. And while I don't believe he lived there, Peter Buck was a part owner in Maxwell's for a while and was dating a woman that lived in Hoboken. And when he wasn't doing anything, he'd come out and he'd hang out in Hoboken for a few weeks, and you'd see him at Maxwell's hanging out. I still remember Courtney Love stumbling around Maxwell's more than once. <laughs> Any other memorable stories, such as something like that, uh, running into Courtney Love at Maxwell's, or any other person no, of no, no, notoriety? No, no, Courtney Love ran into people at Maxwell's. <laughs> you didn't run into her if you were paying attention. <laughs> I guess one of my favorite stories, back when Bob Mould, like Bob Mould again, back when Bob was a part owner and living there, would see him a lot. And one night we were just sitting around talking guitars, and I happened to men- I don't I don't remember how it came up, but I happened to mention that I had always wanted a Gibson. That all I have are Fenders. And he said, "Oh, well, 
You know, it's not a Gibson, it's an Ibanez, but back in Minneapolis, in my uh, one of my store spaces, I have a, a white flying V that uh, is a uh, prototype. It's, it, it's a prototype Ibanez flying V. So next time I'm out there, I'll bring it back for you. I said, well, I don't know, what do you want for it? And he said, eh, 300, 350. Later, come to find out, he was talking about the white flying V he played throughout Husker Du wow. and recorded most of his rep- records with. And if he ever got back to Minneapolis that period, he forgot to get to bring the guitar oh, back, damn. and I never got it. Damn. So you that, almost... That is had, the one that got away. You almost had Bob Mould's guitar that he played throughout the duration of Husker yes. Du. Wow. For, for 3350. Wow. Well... You could have probably sent that to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Wow. I used to have a guitar strap, like a white leather guitar strap. You know, like those uh, silver letters you get to put on your house? Yeah. Like, you know, P.O. Box or whatever. I got four of them to spell out Otis down the front of the strap. But I started taking it to shows and when I was going to meet some of the musicians I really like. And I got tons of them to sign this strap like Jonathan Richman, Nick Lowe, The Replacements, Amul, Chris Stamey, uh, I think Nikki Sudden. I'll never remember them all. Wow. Any other memorable shows that you just have etched into your memory from Maxwell's? Any given day, different ones could pop into my head. So I Super Chunk more times than I could remember. Yeah. Loved Super Chunk so much. Yeah. Hey, it was always fun when I got to play there. That's, yeah, that's cool. Let's, was, uh, yeah, let's play some. Oh, some hey. Stuff. Uh, I'll bet I can find you a performance from Maxwell's featuring Chris Butler from The Waitresses on drums and Rich Grula from Rage to Live, among other projects, on bass. Who wow. were my band from for most of 1990? That's really cool. Yeah. Well, well, let's find one. Look, look. Claudius paid a hundred bucks for this axe today, and I'm gonna get every damn penny's worth out of it. Iowa City rules. That's 100 big ones. I'm not talking pennies. I'm talking dollars. You know. Look, and, we do and, not scrimp on equipment in this band. And look, uh, enough of this freebird stuff. We're ser- we're serious artists. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna do our rush medley now. is that we're on this label called Bar None, and uh, the tapes and records of Otis uh, uh, is, are for sale in the back. But this is another um, artist that's on Bar None who, who won't leave the office. He doesn't want to go out on the road. But we all like this, this song, and I kind of helped write it. I'm in the band, too. Oh, yeah, he's in the band, too. But, uh, anyway, we like this song. And, well, we like this song, and Otis really wants to play drums, so we're going to fake it. What the hell? Nothing at all, and I trip and I fall all the way. And I crawl right down to the bathroom stall. I'm kicking the walls, and I'm calling your name in vain. She looked right through me. 
stall I'm kicking the walls and I'm calling your name in vain And I dance so loud and I dance so rough And I tell you that nothing's never enough Heard a great version of Rage to Live's Enough is Never Enough from the archives. Thank you, Otis. But let's play some more songs now. I'd say let's play, since we did talk about Bob Mould's first solo show, and the Mackenzie Tapes does have a tape of that, let's play a song from that show. You mentioned Super Chunk as well. Yeah. I have a really great tape of a famous, very infamous show where Super Chunk, Smashing Pumpkins, first time they played at Maxwell's. Oh, I was and, there. And um, Urge Overkill, I believe, was the headlining act. Oh, that's possible. Yeah. I, 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 I think we're thinking of the same show. That was a, when they, they played CBs and Maxwell's, the Pumpkins, I believe right? so, yeah. I, I was at and taped both of those shows. I did not tape Urge Overkill. Yeah. The, so we, the, it was, I think, in March, and then the Pumpkins came back and played Maxwell's, I think. Later that year, two shows, I think. Possibly. Uh, well, my, I remember. Well, here's how I know this. All right, another story. <laughs> you can chop it out if you want. No, I'll keep it in. Uh, one of the one of the early times after I'd moved out here, went back to Illinois to visit friends, and was in Chicago visiting one of my friends, and one of her friends was with us and said, "Oh, you guys." You gotta come see this band. You gotta, gotta, gotta come see this band. We gotta go see this band. I said, all right, fine. So went to this dingy club. It kind of looked like uh, a concrete little pit surrounded by some bar tables. Maybe 150 people. Smashing Pumpkins. Wow. So when I got back to New Jersey and their first single, Unlimited Potential, came out, came out, I was like, Oh, we should order just a few, and I bought a couple for myself. And then, bam. Boom. Boom. 
<laughs> but so when they came out their first time in New York, they played Seabees one night with Sebado, and they played Maxwell's with a Super Chunk Sounds Right to yeah. Me. Yeah. So we'll play a track from Super Chunk from that show. Bam, there you go. And let's throw in a song from Apollo 13 uh, by They Might Be Giants. Statue? Yeah, I love that song. Statue got me high. All right, so we're going to play those songs, and then we'll be back. Oh, 
person to master her as long ago. Oh, I knew that this would happen sooner or later. But I disillusioned with it all. I just throw my hands up to the sky and say,
So we heard what we believe to be Bob Mould's, one of his first ever post-Husker Du shows. It happened at Maxwell's on April 30th, 1989. And then we heard Super Chunk at Maxwell's on February 8th, 1991. Wrapped it up with a classic They Might Be Giants song, Statue Got Me High. One they played frequently when Otis toured with them. But I want to 
thank you for being on the program. Yeah, this is so much fun. It was a really happy to really great uh, time talking with you. I love hearing all this uh, stuff. This uh, Hoboken pure platter stuff. It's uh, of great interest to me. So. Coming to the close of the episode, Otis, it was so great having you My today. pleasure, Tom. And uh, great stories to tell. It's always awesome to hear them of a great time and place that you were, you lived through. It's amazing. Well, we'll have to open a bottle of Johnny Walker Black and do it again. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, um, what's, uh, so actually, let's close with uh, one more song of yours. Oh. Uh, I'd love to play a Slow Boat to Hoboken. Oh, of course. I love that song. It's a great song. And uh, thank you. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. So here we go, everyone. Slow Boat to Hoboken off of Otis Ball's first record. What's it called again? Love You Till I Don't. Love You Till I Don't. It's got that cool cover where you're like laying, laying down, right? <laughs> what? Oh, no. <laughs> I... Hate that cover. Oh, you hate it? Okay. Yeah. It's got- but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother time. Okay, so they we'll- <laughs> know. Slow boat to Hoboken. Uh thanks, Otis, again. Thank Take you, care. Tom. Then she called said, get out here now. But it's so far away About a bird no contracts wait I really oughta stay She said there's nothing here Your chats have made that clear So long, little town Got all my laundry done Called again, said I had to go Come for rounds, but I had none I recognized that voice You said I had no choice I'm choking on my words up, told you what she said I talked and what quit Hung it up and the doorbell rang You backed me up and made me split Could be I'll miss this place I'm counting every face And kissing fish goodbye mind on a leash tonight I couldn't break away but I knew what I ought to do she told me what to say I guess I've compromised my ideal circumcised I've hit the 
Slow boat, slow boat, slow boat. 